Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. My guest today is Dr. Paul Kalustian. He is a neurosurgeon in Los Angeles, as well as an author. His books include The Young Neurosurgeon, Lessons from My Patients, and two different poetry books, From the Eyes of a Doctor and My Surgical Cases Told in Poems. Dr. Paul Kalustian comes onto the podcast and talks about his patients, talks about the brain and why we do some of the things we do even when we don't necessarily want to do them. What was most powerful for me about this episode was listening to Paul's compassion he had for his clients and the appreciation he had about the vulnerability of his clients to come and seek help and be in a way in the most vulnerable state you could be with your brain open and being worked on you could really see and hear Paul's passion for helping his clients overcome really difficult and painful situations. Also, a great treat is that Paul reads two of his poems at the end of the episode. It was great to listen to them, and I really enjoyed meeting Paul and talking with him. I hope you enjoy this episode as well. 
Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. I have a wonderful guest today who we were just talking, and I have a lot of questions. Dr. Paul Kalustian, who is a neurosurgeon, and he's going to talk about the brain and addiction and all the different parts of that and what's going on up there. So, Paul, please introduce yourself. Well, good morning. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm a big fan of yours, and I'm a neurosurgeon. I deal with a wide variety of problems affecting the brain, the spinal cord, and a variety of our nerves throughout our body. I've been working for about 17 years now, and the brain has really been such a fascinating organ. Just I remember going through training and you know going through my first few surgeries where the skull was opened up and the, the covering of the brain was opened up and you see the actual pulsation of the brain and, and the, the structure of it. It just always fascinated me. And to this day, I mean, it's just, uh, it's really awe-inspiring. And it really is so important that we really understand our, our brain and our spinal cord functions and really become more appreciative of what they do for us on a daily basis. The question I want to ask is, how do you say, you know, I'm going to be a neurosurgeon. How did that happen? And how did you start to kind of, this is what what interests me. Yeah. First thing is I came from a family of physicians. So honestly, I think medicine was in, was in my DNA, so to speak, sitting at the dinner table. I mean, that's what we spoke about, you know, all the time. And uh, right. my brother and sister are also physicians as well. But I do uh, recall a course I took at Brown University in Rhode Island. It was an introductory neuroscience course uh, that was taught by a wonderful professor who actually wrote the textbook we used. And that was my first introduction to how our brain and spinal cord function. We literally learned about the cells of, of the brain uh, and spinal cord, what these cells do how they function. And you'd be so amazed if you just looked at these these books and research articles on how this once a, a single cell of the brain has so many different functions within it. It's literally a universe within a cell. And it really wow. just fascinated me on how the, all these hormones and neurotransmitters work inside of a cell are created and secreted and then connects to another cell that then makes us do a variety of things we do. You know, addiction is one of those things and that happens in life, among other things, and really all put together because of the actions of the cells of our brain. Wow. As you talk about it, it sounds awe-inspiring. <laughs> you know, you're talking about the universe and this magical thing that happens. It's not magical, but, you know, it almost feels magical in the sense that all of this stuff is taking place in these cells and all this stuff is going on. It, it's pretty awe-inspiring. And, and the neat thing about being a surgeon who has this honor of, of going in and opening up people's brains and spinal, spinal cord and spine is that you can have that opportunity to fix something that is not working well because of some problem, either a compressive problem, if there's something there that's pushing on an area that shouldn't be pushing it on, or some abnormality, a function of the nerves where the nerves aren't sending signals the right way. So as a surgeon, we have that, that honor to fix what's going on, kind of like a glorified uh, plumber or, or a carpenter, so right. to speak, where you're right. kind of relieving the pressure uh, along that area. So one of the questions I have 
And what's been fascinating, just working in the mental health field as a clinician, working as a therapist and, and helping people with all of their problems, you know, addiction being one of them, is the amount of research that's come out in the last decade of just understanding the brain and all of this research that's been coming out. It must be amazing to be there and see all that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it, it's just wonderful to read about all these different studies. And, you know, we've really just cracked the surface uh, of learning about the brain and our spinal cords. Honestly, you know, we only really use about 5 to 10% of our brains, and that really is true. And just imagine, uh, you know, if we're able to utilize another 10% of our brains, what we would know, and 50% more of our brains, what we would know. But certainly, there is just so so much going on. A lot of smart people out there are doing some great work in the lab, clinically, to uh, help other people's lives. I think it's it's fantastic. That's awesome. Now, you're also the author of two poetry books. And... I want to talk about that because I think that's really fascinating because that's so creative and using the brain in this creative capacity. And then also from this neuroscience capacity. And I'd love to talk about that as well. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. I really had a great time writing these books and they are poetry books and it's really a medical poetry approach. I really haven't uh, seen that around and I just had so many cases, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cases that I saw where I needed to just get it out, you know, to, I wanted the world to really experience what I see through my eyes as a surgeon, as a doctor, but also to show the world what my brave patients go through and how, how courageous they are in going through all these ordeals. These are not easy things that people, unfortunately, have to go through. And I, I wanted to share those stories with the world in form of poetry, really. I think poetry is is easy to understand. I think almost everyone can understand poetry through through its rhymes and through its simple sentences, through you know, easy to understand words. And I think a lot of times we doctors lose people because we use big, big words uh, that no one really understands. And there's no good in that if no one's understanding what you're saying. So I think poetry really was a way of making things easier to understand for people of all ages, really, and in terms of what I go through and what my patients go through. I, I really enjoyed it. Wow, that's awesome. And I can hear your passion of how it is to see your clients who are suffering in, in some kind of pain. And I, I would imagine with neurological disorders of this sort, that that can be really challenging. And to see them go through that and to walk with them and then be able to help them. Yeah, it's uh, it really is a humbling experience, honestly. And, and we really can't know what our patients go through until you're in that situation. But certainly, I do have a lot of empathy for, for people, for patients. And so I can really do my best to put myself in their position and you know, just imagine, you know, someone coming in and, and, and uh, they have a massive brain tumor or spinal cord tumor and they've lost their ability to see uh, because of some problem in the brain or they've lost their ability to move their legs because of a spinal cord injury. I actually 
just operated on two people, I believe, two or three uh, over the last week and a half, emergently in the middle of the night because of acute onset of, of severe weakness of their arms and legs. All of a sudden, they just stopped moving their arms and legs and were wow. transferred in to see me. And one had a blood clot in the in the neck area that was pushing on his spinal cord. And the other one had an abscess or infection pushing on the spinal cord. So these, these things have to be drained. They have to be re- removed in a timely fashion so that the spinal cord can heal. So yeah, these are just fantastic opportunities to, to learn and to help people. That is awesome. So let's talk a little bit about the brain and about addiction and the different aspects that go on in that capacity and and what you know, what you've seen with this. Yeah, no, uh, I, being a neurosurgeon, I've seen a lot of pathology due to addiction, believe it or not. I mean, alcohol addiction, I see thousands of patients with alcohol addiction problems. They come in and usually come in because of a fall and they struck their head. And this has caused a hemorrhage in their brain usually. And I have to drain that blood clot sometimes. Other addictions, you know, uh, methamphetamine, other drug addictions, you know, those those tend to cause hemorrhages in the brain because they increase the blood pressure in your brain and these tiny blood vessels in the brain can't take that blood pressure. So after a while, they're just wow. going to pop. And when they pop, wow. it, you know, causes a, a bleed. And, and some have been fatal, unfortunately, because by the time they come in, there's not much you can do. But most of the time, I would say 90% of the time, I'm able to help them and save them and they have residual weakness, but they're alive and they move on with their lives. But, you know, addiction is a big, big problem, not only in the field I'm in, but just globally uh, in terms of economic costs and medical yeah. medical costs and violence, you know, that, that happens. And it's a problem for a reason. It's because it is a true pathological condition. It is a problem with the brain structures no one wants right. to have that problem. It's just, it's a problem that happens because our brains become used to a certain level of activity and hormonal balance. And the brain, after a while of doing drugs, of doing alcohol or smoking, the brain thinks that's normal. So it kind of makes your body want to stay in that environment. And, you know, you have the frontal lobes that are involved. You have the memory areas of the brain, like the hippocampus involved in this. You have the nucleus accumbens, which is one of the most important areas for addiction. It's the area where dopamine, which is an important hormone in addiction, is, is made. Right, right. So, so those, and also your eyes, your, your visual area, all of these matters, you know, because, for example, the memory area. You may be, you know, in an area with maybe at a party, let's say, and you, everyone's holding a glass of alcohol or doing drugs or whatever, and your mind may take you back to a moment where you used to do that and you were having a good time. It's like that that memory center where you remember those good times. Right, right. It makes yeah. you want to do that again. So that's why the memory center is really important in the hippocampus with addiction. And then you have obviously the, the, the visual areas because you're seeing People have fun and it kind of affects how you interpret these activities that others are doing that may not be good for you. Like you were saying earlier that, you know, no one wants to be addicted. But what I hear you saying is as these things in the brain play out, 
all of these little pieces, you know, the, the nuclei accumbens and its dopamine production and these memories come in from the hippocampus and they all continue to kind of play a role in keeping that behavior going, even though it's destructive, even though one part of the brain, I guess, says, hey, don't do that. The other part of the brain saying, go do that. Right. And usually it's the part of the brain that says do it that wins because part of addiction is not only the the reward aspect, like, you know, you win something like gambling, you won a lot of money. That's a great feeling, right? It's hard to beat that. So part of addiction is suppressing kind of that, that other person on your uh, other end of your shoulder saying, don't do it. You kind of suppress that. That's part of the addiction process. Do, do we know like what part of the brain is the kind of the yes part of the brain and what part of the brain is kind of the no part of the brain? I don't know if that question yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think just the, the structures I just mentioned, all of those are really the, the areas of the brain that do both of those, but it's really the reward part that dominates because people like that high, that feeling of winning and being like happy and super excited that always will kind of win over any other kind of, I guess, more boring type of feeling in your brain. So that's just part of the addiction process. And addiction suppresses the parts of the brain that kind of will calm you down, you know, like serotonin and all these other hormones. It kind of suppresses all those things and it more highlights all these more high energy reward states of the brain. And so it kind of just drives our behavior, kind of drives the bus. Yeah. You know, what our brains decide to do is what we do. That's why the brain is just so, such a fascinating and critical aspect of our lives. In a lot of senses of the terms, we don't really have that much control. And that is why addiction is a hard problem to, to fight and beat. Best thing is don't get started in doing these those types of things. But once you do get started, definitely seeking help, uh, both psychologically and right, and avoiding right. avoiding those situations, you know, where your eyes, your memory areas would get stimulated to possibly get back into doing those things. So that's why those activities are very important uh, in treating addiction. It's just uh, it, it, the brain is very, very powerful. And once the brain gets stimulated, it's a powerful organ to change. It takes work. It takes energy. But it's not impossible. Not impossible. I mean, I've heard the term used, the hijacked brain. Like when when someone is in that addictive state or they kind of get that cue, it's almost like the brain has been hijacked and it just steers the body into that direction. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one way to, to look at it. It really is, in a sense, a hijacking of of your brain, your body from an external source, drugs, alcohol, smoking, coffee, caffeine. People don't think of these things, but you know, chocolate. I was reading an article about chocolate the other day. I mean, I have to say I kind of, I like chocolate, you know, and I kind of have it every day. So I think everything in moderation, you know, I mean, I can, I can go a few days without it, which is good for me to do that. But certainly once the brain like something, it is hard to to switch it to a state where you don't like that particular thing. It takes right. work. It takes a lot of mental strength and mental fortitude to do that. And it's actually really a good test to do that, to actually 
not have, and I've done that before, not have things I like for a while to test my body. And you know what? It, it actually works out fine. Maybe the first day is tough or for sometimes if you're stressed, you may want to do something here and there. But you know what? Then you look back, you're like, wow, you know, I did it. You know, I, I did that. It took effort, but I did it. One of the things that I've read about, especially in addiction, is the idea of that change, but that neuroplasticity takes takes time for that to happen in the brain. So someone who's struggling with addiction, maybe they're on a very addictive drug, that they have to be away from it for a while for the brain to kind of readapt, relearn. And that's almost where the struggle is, in essence. It's like, if I go away from it, I feel I feel bad. I have a lot of pain, maybe physical pain, mental pain, depression, anxiety, but I can't stay away long enough and out of that pain to help move the brain over to a different way of thinking. Mm. So I guess two questions there. Would that be kind of accurate? And then that neuroplasticity part, changing the brain. Yeah, so plasticity is a very important topic in neuroscience. And yes, the, the brain is very plastic. It does demonstrate plasticity and it and it can and will change. If you're younger, it changes much, much faster. If you're older, it changes much, much slowly or, or perhaps uh, at some point not at all, unfortunately. And I see that a lot in, in, in patients I treat with healing. You know, the younger they are, the better the outcomes typically. And the older they are, the brain has just taken that insult and it's, it's going to take a lot longer to heal. So, yes. And, you know, actually, the addiction process also involves genetics. There's a big genetic component to it with the, the Delta FOS, FOS transcription factors that alter our DNA. Uh, so, believe it or not, the act of doing something that may become addictive does alter our genetic makeup. And people don't understand that, but it really does. It, and it particularly is the case in people that do things over and over and over again, you know, whatever, whatever smoking, drinking, etc. Uh, so it does alter our genetic makeup through those transcription factors and well, well studied. And that's what makes part of this hard to treat in a fast way. And that's where plasticity comes. Plasticity takes time for the brain and the body to then develop this new normal because uh, over time with doing something like drugs or drinking or smoking, the brain now makes that your new normal. And so it adjusts everything throughout your whole body to based on that. So, so right. to change that, it's going to take time. It's going to take energy, counseling, and uh, hard work. But you know, the other thing is that's quite interesting is a lot of this is genetic as well, uh, especially with addiction. A lot of uh, twin studies have been done. That's the best way to study a genetic right, right. thing. And it's extremely rare, if not, I would say zero percent chance that one twin would have it and the other w would not have addiction. It's an extremely addictive tendency and, and problem. So those people that have this in the family should definitely always be aware of that uh, before, not only before starting something, but in their treatment process. Is that meaning that they're kind of pre-wired for addiction? Like their their brain is wired for that in a way, or their body is wired for that, and the genetic code is going to maybe favor that a little bit? Absolutely. I think there is that uh, genetic makeup thing, but also 
imagine growing up and you're, you're five years old, you see your parents shooting drugs or, or drinking alcohol and blacking out in front of you. And then you're fast forward, you're 40 years old and you're, you're getting these memories of that again. And it's right. a tough one. You, you, it's, so it's kind of both a genetic and an environmental nature and nurture situation there where you have this history with your family that you, you saw. And then at the same time, you have this pre-wiring genetic tendency. So that, that's a tough one. Yeah, definitely. And that's where I think support comes in. And we need support to be able to help our brains heal. Oh, yeah. Super important what you do and what your colleagues do and, and others in, in really getting people through some of their most difficult situations. A question that's come up for me, too, just as you were beginning to talk, I could see your passion for seeing your clients overcome such adversity and such difficulty. For you, what does that tell you about the human spirit and the drive in there? Yeah. You know, what I've really learned over the last 17 years through taking care of a lot, a lot of sick people is that the body is a magnificent creation that really works in our favor. So, and what I mean by that is that the body will always try to heal. That is how we are made. And a lot of times it's really us kind of outside of our bodies, but but it's really us that don't appreciate that and are not allowing our own bodies to heal. We're actually self-sabotaging ourselves in a lot of instances because let's say you, for example, have a wound on your hand. Well, let's say, okay, you cut your hand, but you know, that heals in about two weeks. You know, we've all had that happen. Right. We bruised our knees. We've cut our arms and legs and you know, my son just fell and bruised his knees, but you know, it's, I'm looking, it's, it's basically gone. It's, it's healed. I didn't do anything to it. It healed. You know, I didn't put any magical potion on it. So that's how our bodies heal, both on our skin level or liver or organs or brains or spinal cord. All these are made to heal. And a lot of times we have to get a little bit of help from people like me and you. But other than that, I mean, the body will heal itself. So that's one of the things I've really learned to to love about being human. You know, I, I think it's just so fascinating to see how we are created going through med school, learning about the anatomy of our body and our brain, just a wonderful creation we are. Maybe I'll write something about that. Yeah, that sounds, I mean, it sounds like I I hear it in your voice, the inspiration and the awe of our humanness and what our body and brains and spirit can do. It really is, honestly, it really is. And, And you don't really see that until you see people that are injured or sick. That's when you really appreciate the beauty of health, of how our bodies are made and created. It's only really through seeing disease over and over again, which I have over 17 years. That's when you really come to appreciate the uniqueness of us. I think there's something in being able to witness from a compassionate stance, human suffering that allows us to have compassion and awe about how we overcome some of these really difficult situations and move through them. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, seeing people in their greatest time of need when they're sick really sheds a new light on what the meaning of life is about. It tells us what is really important in life. Is it a green paper like money uh, or is it health and happiness and security? You don't really come to understand that until you yourself are sick. And we've all been there. We've all been sick. And right. uh, yeah. And it's not a good feeling. It really isn't. And some people are perpetually sick and it's sad and uh, our jobs are to help them. And it's the greatest feeling, I tell you, uh, being able to change someone's life from being sick to being healthy. There isn't a greater gift in my mind other than that. And uh, I think there's a lot of great people out there in, in medicine and uh, research and, and other fields that are doing great work and changing people's lives with their hands, with their heart, with their minds. Uh, and that's what life's about. That's awesome. So tell me a little bit more about your writing and your poetry, because I think this all ties together. Yeah. You know, uh, I wrote a book called The Young Neurosurgeon, Lessons from My Patients. Uh, it's really a, a memoir of experiences of, of real life cases I, uh, that I saw as a neurosurgeon in training in New Mexico in Albuquerque. What a, what a fascinating state that is uh, in New Mexico. Such pathology there. And I really saw so much disease and was able to help so many people that I, I needed to put that into a book. And so that tells the story of a lot of different patients uh, and what not only what not only what I was able to provide to them, but what they provided to me and what I learned from my patients, you know, and seeing them go through these difficult, difficult surgical cases and seeing them recover, it really taught me a lot about being human, about uh, about our desire, once again, to work hard and, and that with the power of the mind, we can conquer illness and we can conquer addiction. We can conquer all of these things that seemingly have control over us, but yet at the end of the day, we can win and, and beat quite easily. That's awesome. It's just inspiring. And I can, I can feel your passion to help people to better them. And in, in such a capacity and such a, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to, you know, open up the, the, the brain and <laughs> open up the body in that way and, and heal in that way. It just, yeah. it, it, it seems incredibly <laughs> overwhelming to me from this side of it. But I, uh, you know, I, I, I imagine that it that's also truly amazing to see that side and to see their spirit and human side go through that must be amazing. It is. And it's, you know, every, every case I, I do, um, I'm always humbled by it, honestly, and I will always be humbled by it. Every patient is so unique and different. And and I always remain very, very humbled in any case, no matter how small or large and difficult the case may be. And it is so fascinating for me, even to this day, uh, despite many thousands of surgeries I've done, to see the structure of the brain, to see the structure of the spinal cord under the microscope, to see those tiny arteries and, and veins that are so vitally important supplying those areas and to see the actual tumor or whatever pathology there and, and really physically removing it and seeing the patients do well is just is the greatest gift that that I have been provided uh, and I will always cherish that. That is awesome. So we're, we're coming up on our time. There's one question I, I usually like 
to ask before I wrap up the episode. And that's if, if someone's out there listening and maybe they're having a difficult time, maybe it's, it's hard, maybe they're going through something. What would you want to tell them? What would be the one thing you would want to say to them? Oh, I would love to talk to them. There's a lot to say, but uh, the one thing I, I guess would be you need to believe in yourself by believing in yourself and the power that you have to conquer any anything, you can get through the most dire of situations. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I tell you that that is the truth. But you have to believe in yourself wholeheartedly and do the right thing. Awesome. Thank you, Paul, so much. How, how can people find you and your books and... And if they want to know more or ask you more questions, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, just check out my website, uh, Dr. Paul Writing. That's drpaulwriting.com. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast. I appreciate it, Paul. So in this part of the episode, I actually had Paul come back to read his poems and he was very gracious to do so. So I hope you enjoy them. Here they are. All right, Paul, I'm excited. You're going to read some of your poems that you've written from your experiences. And as we were saying earlier, just before we started recording, the importance of, I guess what I imagine is, is seeing you working on these people in such a vulnerable space you know you're in their brain their personhood and the struggle they're going through you're with them in that and i was thinking about that before we did this part of the interview and was kind of like wow that's that's pretty amazing so i thought it'd be awesome that you you share some of this you know people don't know what we do as doctors as neurosurgeons they don't know we drill holes in people's brains and skulls and open up people's spinal cords and look inside of it with a microscope. So there's so many different things that that we do that are just almost out of this world type of a, a, a thought process, you know, uh, it just, yeah. yeah, but people don't talk about it. And, you know, there are thousands and thousands of patients out there that have undergone these surgeries and no one talks about them. And it's so sad, right. you know, because these patients are so brave and so courageous for going through what they actually went through. So I would, yeah, I would be delighted to, to read you awesome. two of my poems. Great. The first one is called Deep in the Brain. This poem is about a patient that I operated on who had a disorder that we all are pretty familiar with. It's called Parkinson's disease. So Michael J. Fox and all these other more well-known right. people have it. And Muhammad Ali had it. And it's very debilitating. Uh, you really lose the essence of who you are in a sense, and you become kind of embarrassed by some of the, f the features associated with the disease, like the shaking and tremors and right, tough, right. difficulty with walking and all of that. And so I wanted to show people what we do to treat this. And it's really by putting these special, very thin electrodes into the brain, into a specific area of the brain through a small hole in the skull, with a stimulation attached to it uh, that then instantaneously really cures patients. So if you don't wow. mind, let me yes, read here. please. Deep in the brain, he slowly walks in with the use of a cane. 
his hands dancing as if a clarinet was playing. His voice soft, his gait festinating. He has tried all the medications, none were abating. He asks for our help to cure him of this disease. This disease that progresses, Michael J. Fox agrees. What agony, what frustration must this man feel? The former boxing champion must withdraw and kneel. Neurosurgery, a field of wonder, fraught with trial and error and ponder. For many years have the healers attempted the assassination of the Parkinsonian temptation. The screws are placed in, in accordance with the line. A helmet is placed. The battle will begin in due time. Analyzing the trails, understanding the unique paths. This is half the battle. Know all the tracks. The headpiece is placed on. All three axes are aligned. They're all in order to direct one straight line. It is like a missile launched from the U.S. to hit another country, precise, without bliss. The swords are pulled out and the soldiers march forward, destined to their target, a target that has caused so much discomfort. As they advance forward, different sounds can be heard. They are looking to hear the beat, the beat of the Kurd. They are at their target, the sounds very unique. They devour the enemy, the patient critiques. He raises his arms with no movement noticed. He sheds a tear, I will never forget this moment. The battle was won, but there are many more to fight. The precise planning determined this man's plight. Battles are fought and none are plain, especially with neurosurgery deep in the brain. Wow. Wow. That's awesome, Paul. Thank you. And this next one is uh, just as interesting. It's about a young patient of mine, a pediatric patient, who actually uh, had fallen down and had a skull fracture. And usually these skull fractures heal, but in some rare cases, these fractures won't heal because of the pulsation of the brain. It just prevents the skull from healing. So over time, what can happen is that the brain and the covering of the brain can protrude through that fracture through the skull. And so the patients come in with this this pulsating mass underneath their skin, and it's just pulsating there. It's really brain that wow. that fracture. So I'm going to talk about this particular poem that discusses this case. So it's called Pulsatile Scalp, which is quite interesting to just hear yeah. words put together. Child had fallen, only four months old, striking his head, cracking the bowl. Fracture had extended through his soft spot. No surgical treatment needed. Follow this plot. One year later, the child is brought in. He's gotten bigger, able to play now with tin. The scalp is unique, a large bump on his head, pulsating rhythmically, a condition that we did dread. A growing skull fracture brain pushing through the hole, can become dangerous if things are not closed. Take him to the operating room, expose that bony defect, close the dura mater, and reconstruct the head. Absorbable plates are laid down along with hydroxyapatite cement. 
trying to smoothen out the skull, give this child the smooth head. Two months later, he presents to the clinic, smiling and playing, no sign that we had a picnic. So that was, that was an interesting case I remember quite vividly of helping this young lad out. We had a good time doing it. So I think wow. these are a couple of cases of many that I, that I talk about. And I try to make it so that each word or each line has a deeper meaning so that people can yeah. really think about it and make their own interpretation of what it may mean. Yeah. Wow, Paul, thank you so much for sharing that and putting that in, in, and just speaking to it. Because I, I am just imagining these situations where you're seeing, you know, like this boy or this man with Parkinson's and this is their hope that they can have their life right. and that they can move forward and an incredible amount of responsibility and vulnerability on just mm. everybody who's present. Yeah. That's what I that's what it speaks to me. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. So thank you, Paul, so much for sharing. I will once again, I will put all your books in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com. So if anybody wants to get them, they can they can do that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. All right. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. And there you can find links to all of Paul's books. Once again, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us or share the podcast with a friend. And don't forget, you can join the conversation online by joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day. And I will talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.